everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. With the NFL Draft in the rearview mirror, I've been spending an inordinate amount of time researching and understanding the fit of the players my team, the New England Patriots, selected. And before you get all bandwagony on me, I'm from Boston and been a Patriots fan long before the annual trips to the Super Bowl. You like how I slid that in there? Annual trips to the Super Bowl? (laughs) We're back on track. I'm researching these players, even down to the undrafted free agents and how much guaranteed money they signed for because I am a dork and I'm really needy for sports knowledge of any kind right now. Anyway, as I do this, I'm realizing a theme. I think a lot of prospects get bad info. Here's what I mean. I hear a lot of well, my agent told me he thought I'd go in the third or fourth round, so I was a little disappointed going in the sixth round, and now I have a chip on my shoulder to prove everyone wrong. This gets repeated often. And it isn't limited to the Patriots, and it isn't limited to this year. I've been listening to these same quotes for the 25 years I've worked in the sports industry. Every year, it's the same routine. A lot of over-promising to hype their player and then under-delivering and blaming it on the process. It is maddening to be completely honest with you. And it's kind of a theme for our world right now. Overpromise and pat yourself on the back, stretch the truth or flat out lie to get someone to like you. And when it doesn't go as you predicted, look to blame someone else and avoid any responsibility yourself. Sound like anyone you know? Well, we all know people like this. But let's relate this back to player agency. There should be power in honesty. There should be situations where the most honest, researched, competent, and thorough agents get the clients. Maybe that happens, but I fear more often than not, the agents that over-promise and over-hype land the deals. In a sad way, it makes sense. Picture yourself as a 20-year-old headed to the NFL draft, deciding who should represent you. One agent hypes you up big time. You're a second-round draft pick. Teams love you, and I'm going to help you get sponsorships and fast cars. And the next agent says... Based on, my research, based on my research, teams will start showing interest in you around the fifth round, but the sixth to seventh is actually more likely. Here are the teams you fit best with. Here's what your contract could look like in these rounds. Here's what these teams fear about you, and here's what we need you to tell them. Let's get prepped for the combine with my team and see if we can't get you in that fifth round or higher. You, the prospect, may come out of these two meetings and think person B or team B or agency B doesn't believe in me, and therefore... You picked the human hype machine that told you how great you were. This is what you're used to. You probably came up in high school and were the most dominant player. Everybody told you how awesome you were. You went to a big college. You were dominant. Everybody told you how great you were. And now you expect someone to do the same again. This is frustrating, but understandable in this cycle. Telling people what they want to hear is more effective than telling them the truth. Every once in a while, athletes see through this facade. I'm sure there are hundreds of these examples, but one that comes to mind is Baker Mayfield. Leading up to the 2018 draft, Mayfield had a decision to make on an agent. His family was approached by every major agency, of course, in the country, and many of those agents promised him that they could get him drafted number one overall. And according to published reports at the time, this puffery did not go over well with the Mayfields. 
I like this. Their BS meter was on high, knowing what agents can and can't accomplish. Like them promising that he'd go number one overall is ridiculous. Don't overcommit on things you can't control. Tell me what you really can do for me. Mayfield ended up choosing today's guest, Jack Mills, an OG of the agency game. Over 50 years in the business, Jack Mills doesn't have to pump up anyone. He's represented number one draft picks before. Irving Fryer in 1984, George Rogers in 1981. Heck, in 1984, he represented the number one and the number two pick. And in 1983, he represented the number two pick in the draft. A guy you may have heard of, Eric Dickerson. Heard of him? The best thing Jack and his son Tom were able to do for Baker was to be honest and help him with an overall strategy for the process. As former Dallas Cowboys personnel executive and Hall of Famer Gil Brandt said about Mills, I've known Jack forever. Jack Mills is a solid, solid, solid individual. Everybody likes the guy. And you know what? After this interview, I think you will too. Here's Jack Mills. Hey, Jack, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for agreeing to do this. You've had a really exciting season, I would say, having Baker Mayfield as one of your clients and third rounder Michael Gallup. Uh, I've always been curious. Over the years, it appears that agency and representation has consolidated into a few major big players. All the biggest and brightest seem to get represented by a handful of names or agencies. As someone like you with decades of experience, how do you cut through the huge competition out there to still land players like Baker Mayfield and like Michael Gallup. How do you go about doing that? Well, it's not easy, as you can imagine. Uh, In Mayfield's case, uh, I have had a long history at the University of Oklahoma. That's my school. I went there. I went to law school there. And I've had uh, any number of players over the years that played at OU and then played in the NFL. And I think in that case... uh, uh, Mayfield's parents were just looking for a straight deal, and um, uh, they had talked to some of my friends from OU days and some of my former clients, and I think that really is what opened the door for us. And they had decided up front that they did not want a big firm. Okay. So that also worked in our favor. Otherwise, uh, if they said, you know, we want the big firm, then it would have been over pretty quick. Why do you think certain people gravitate towards the big firm? And in in Baker's uh, situation, why do you think he gravitated against it? Well, Baker is very much of an individual. He's very much his own person. Um, He really has a mind of his own and doesn't just follow the leader. He is the leader. And... um, I think that otherwise, I think some people are attracted to the big firm just because of the names that they have. You know, they want to be associated with some of the great players that the big firms have. Um, and we had them over the years in my history. I've had 46 first rounders, but, but I haven't had that many in recent times. And, um, so some of the names that would be familiar, like, you know, some past Heisman Trophy winners or something, wouldn't be that familiar to players coming out today. Okay. So, um, so I think that that's one of the reasons that, that players go for the big firms. They like the, um, 
they like the association with all the names that they can produce. And for you personally, running a smaller firm, what do you think is the biggest advantage that you kind of bring to the table? Uh, I just think it's a lot more personalized. Um, we we take a very strong personal interest in our clients, and we're very available to them. To me, it's a long-term relationship business. It's not a matter of uh, just making a deal and moving on. It's a matter of establishing a relationship and being there through the years. Uh, a lot of my good friends today are people that I represented many years ago who are now way beyond their pro careers and are out in the business world or whatever they're doing. Some of them have even retired by now um, from what they were doing. But um, I just think it's a difference in, in the, the personal attention that we can provide. You know, I think it's really interesting that a guy like Tom Brady and Jimmy Garoppolo were represented by this are are still represented by the same agent, Don Yee. How would something like that work? I mean, how can how could an agent possibly do their fiduciary best by their client if another one of their clients is in competition for the same position on the same team? I mean, I just don't see how that can build trust right there. That is a very tricky one, I'll have to admit. Um I think there's clearly a conflict when they're on the same team competing for the same position. Uh, I just think, though, that a client, uh, in any type of conflict situation, a client pretty much needs to waive the client, I mean, the conflict. Okay. I, th- I think you need to make it clear to them that uh, this situation is going to happen. Now, for example, when I'm sure Garoppolo... Um, associated with Don Yee, he didn't know he was going to be on New England. At least right. I'd be surprised if he did. Yeah. So once the draft occurs, you may find yourself in a conflict that you didn't really anticipate. And so, but I think if it's a situation where you take on a veteran that's in competition with another player on the same team, I think you owe it to your client, your the existing client, to be made aware of that yeah. and to put his stamp of approval on it. Um, that's basically what you have to do as a real lawyer. So um, I just, I, it, it is a, it can be a very, very delicate situation because um, we know that the competition is, is pretty, um, is pretty intense. And in Garoppolo's case, you know, he's no longer with New England. It worked out fine. Yeah. And, um, and Don Yee, in my opinion, is a is a very ethical person. So um, I, I'm sure I'm sure when Garoppolo got drafted there, it wasn't exactly what he had in mind to happen, but it did happen. Yeah, I'm sure these conflicts come up sometimes. You don't even predict them happening, like you said. Uh, how yeah. how would you personally describe? You've been in the industry for 40 years. How would you describe the art of being an agent? Would you consider it a relationship job or is it more of a CBA knowledge and contract negotiation type of focus? How do you kind of describe it? Well, I think it's all of that. To me, um, I've always often said for people that think they want to get in this business, I tell them the first thing they need is a servant's mentality. So they've got to be willing to... um, you know, take care of their client in whatever needs the client has. Uh, it's not all just negotiating contracts. There's a lot of other personal things that come into play. So to me, in many cases, you become 
that person's most trusted advisor. And so I think it's really, to me, if if it's done properly, it develops into a very uh, close relationship. Uh, and mo- and most of the time that's up to the player. Okay. I mean, some guys want more of a relationship than others. So I pretty much leave it up to the client as to what they want me to do beyond the contract itself. But in most cases, it has developed over the years into good personal relationships that go way beyond just being the, uh, the uh, agent or the contract advisor role. I imagine that's got to be one of the big differences between the large firms or the big name agents who represent, you know, a hundred or 200 players versus somebody like you who has a different philosophy is that you're able to build those personal relationships and you're able to connect with the, uh, the players on a different level. And I would think to some that's, that's exactly what they would want and look for, um, out of an agent, you know, moving forward. Agree. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, that's, that to me is the big difference between, the big firm and the and the more boutique firm, the way we are. Um, I just think, in spite of how many, <clears throat> I mean, how much a an agent may want to develop a personal relationship if he's looking after a hundred people. Yeah, you just can't. He's just limited in what he can do. It's it's not a matter of desire or intent. It's just simply what you're. <laughs> What, what do you have time for, you know? Exactly. And and it, to me, it's a matter of being available for the client, returning his phone calls promptly, uh, getting back to him when he has a question or a problem. And uh, because, you know, when you're, develop, when you're negotiating a three- or four-year contract, uh, you're not going to be doing a contract again for a while. So a lot of things can come up in the meantime that are just what we call client maintenance. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So you refer to yourself as having a boutique firm, but I don't want to undersell it. You've represented some of the biggest names in the game, guys like Eric Dickerson and Tony Baselli and Rod Smith and Heisman Trophy winners. What are some of the biggest challenges you have faced managing some of these larger than life athletes as they progress through the league? I mean, you start out with them as really young men getting ready to enter the league and then money comes in and different challenges and different endorsements. And how does that how do the, how do those challenges change as you grow with the player? Well, when when the guys first come in the league, um, and depending on what their background is, but most of them have never had any money, right? And um, and it's a whole big new wide world that they're going into from college sports into the NFL. So it's just there's a huge transition to be made. And so I think initially you're just trying to prepare these guys for what's ahead for, you know, in, in, in college there, there's a bunch of guys on scholarship. And so the first thing I tell them is there's no scholarships in pro sports. And there's going to be, for example, the NFL, there's going to be 90 guys when training camp starts and there's going to be 53 when it's over. So some people that you may get close to are not going to be there. And so I think, I, I think it's, if in a word, it's developing a business mentality about the sport. It's the first time I think they've had to think about it in business terms as opposed to something they're, they've been doing all their life yeah. for fun. 
and for pleasure and for the for the love of the game, so to speak. Uh, there's room for that at the pro level, but they better they need to start thinking about it as a business, or they're going to get disappointed uh, in the way they get treated or in the result that they. Uh, realize from it and so uh and and so once they get further along in the sport you know after that first contract they're much more sophisticated about what the game is about and about what's involved in the contract process what free agency is about just they just have so much more knowledge and experience about the lifestyle and the nature of the business. So as they get older, your role changes. They don't demand as much. They're not as high maintenance. They may not depend on you uh, for as much as they did when they first came in the league. That makes sense. You seem like a very measured and calm and thoughtful person. When you go through the process of recruiting a new athlete and you land somebody like Baker Mayfield, who you know has a chance at being a number one overall pick, do you have a moment where you celebrate or do you just immediately start thinking of what's next on the to-do list? Well, um, a little of both. I mean, you're certainly going to to have a little bit of private celebration. In my case, you know, my son is my partner. And uh, <clears throat> it was a very satisfying thing for us to get a client of this magnitude. And so we're naturally going to be happy and and enjoy the, the just the fact of being at that level. But from there on, uh, you really don't have a lot of time to think about it because stuff starts, starts happening immediately for a player that is going to be looked at that high. There's teams calling all the time about this or that, and yeah. they may want interviews. They want workouts. There's the combine to deal with. There's the on-campus workouts to deal with. And then, of course, leading up to the draft, uh, I think Baker had like seven or eight trips he took for private interviews mm-hmm. uh, with the different teams that were showing a lot of interest. So, yeah, it's a little bit of both. You're, you, when you've been through this a number of times, you really kind of know what the drill is going to be. But And so you kind of prepare him for that, give him a, a schedule of what to expect. And so it's it's just, like I say, it's a little of both. It's a little bit yeah. of enjoying the process and also uh, getting right to work with what you need to do. You and I were connected by a mutual friend, Zach Gross, and I give Zach a lot of credit. You were a panelist at the Sports Management Worldwide NFL Combine Career Conference, and he identified you. He was in the crowd. He identified you as someone he wanted to meet. He struck up a conversation. He's built a relationship with you since. How vital is it to be that personality type, the aggressive, fearless, talk to anyone type to be a successful agent? Now, you don't necessarily sound that way, and yet you always have this you have this vision of agents as being aggressive and having this fearless attitude how important do you think that is well i taught sports law for many years at the university of colorado law school for about 20 years and the very first thing i told people uh in the classes was that if they wanted to have a career in the sports industry that they couldn't know too many people 
And so I encourage them to start meeting people to attend conferences like the Sports Lawyers Conference that we just had in D.C. last week mm-hmm. or go to the uh, the thing that Zach went to in uh, in Indianapolis, the uh, uh, Worldwide Sports Conference yep. uh, uh, the the that they yeah. had. And you just really – uh, the, you, you just never know, and and I've always pretty much made myself available to young people to give them whatever direction or whatever uh, guidance or counseling I could give them because it's a, it is a tough industry to break into. So you've got to be you've got to be very patient, you've got to persevere, and you've got to. Um, You've got to handle some rejection because you're not just going to walk out and get the dream job or, you know, start representing uh, number one draft choices. It's probably going to take a few years to develop a practice to where you can get where you want to be. So I, I think I don't know if it's a, much a matter of being aggressive as it is being persistent okay. and and not getting discouraged to where you're going to be disappointed and quit before you have a chance to allow it to develop. Yeah, I've always wondered that. Is it even possible nowadays for someone to become an agent and kind of work their way up by representing undrafted free agents and seventh rounders? Or would you say somebody trying to get into it initially is better off trying to sign on with one of those bigger firms and kind of learn the industry from the inside out in a way? What do you think? Well, I think ideally, if you can, if you could get on with one of the bigger firms, that would be ideal. Um, there, there would be more of a training program, you know, opportunity. Yeah. Just the way we are with three agents here in one location, um, there, they might learn something from us, but we wouldn't have. Uh, the structure, you might say, or the organization to give them the benefit of the experience that they would get from a bigger firm mm-hmm. to where there's more clients, to where there's maybe more going on year-round. For example, uh, some of the bigger firms would probably do marketing in-house, and we don't do that. Uh, so, you know, to me, the ideal thing would be to 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 get an internship with a big firm or the players association yeah and then use that to roll into your own practice or maybe to get in with a smaller firm because one thing about a smaller firm they would rather not have to spend time training someone in the business You're right and i think that's true with the leagues and everything for for example, attorneys coming into the league and to the Players Association are probably coming in with quite a bit of experience. They're not coming in right out of law school. And so to me, it's and, – and you may want to stay with a big firm. It may, it may develop into a long-term opportunity. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that because, you know, it could represent a lot of job security to be with a bigger firm. Yep. But at least to get started and to learn the business – you know, experience sales and resume experience is important when you're trying to find a job in this business. For sure. So let's just pretend for a second. Let's say you were looking to expand and you were going to try to hire 10 new agents. Um, if you were hiring a team of new people to work under you, what are the qualities that you would be looking for? Well, 
uh, let's put it this way: in 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 this business, probably the most important thing you do is recruit new clients. And I don't mean, I, I would say beyond the representation itself. Uh, I've always felt that if you can attract new clients, you can learn to do the business. But you, you could be the most qualified, intelligent person and well-prepared in the collective bargaining agreement and all the contract information. And if you don't have a client, you don't have the opportunity to use that. And so <clears throat> I would be looking for people that are ethical, that are honest, that um, are willing to work hard, and, and ideally people that would be able to bring in new clients. Right. And, and to me, that is where the people skills or you might say the sales ability comes into play. And I, and I don't mean doing anything dishonest in the recruiting process, but just people that have a way of getting to know people quickly and to get their trust. You know, it, to me, it's, it, it's like I say, it's a close relationship. Yeah. You want to work with people that you like and that you have something in common with and that you think care about you. And so, to me, to be a good recruiter or a good business developer, you need to have those qualities. Does the same fit for the people that you want to represent? Like, as you've been in this business longer, are you choosier about who you want to work with because you do spend so much time servicing them and working with them? Do you Are you a pickier at this point in your career, or are you willing to just, you know, go for the, the best possible opportunity for your business? <clears throat> well, I would say that, you know, there's certain there's certain qualities that we look for. First of all, we it's a two way street. In other words, we want to get people that we like. Yeah. That people that we can have good conversation with. People that will listen to our advice. And so, you know, we let's put it this way: you put if if a guy, it's like when teams are keeping players on that may have been trouble for them. If they're great players, you're willing to put up with more yeah. than if a player is not a great player and he's a and he's a very high maintenance guy that's always getting into trouble. Yep. You know, there's just there's a business aspect to our side of it. And so there's there's you know, we have our we have in our mind the kind of guys we like to work with. And normally our guys have turned out to be, uh, for example, we've had a lot of offensive linemen. Okay. Offensive linemen by nature tend to be really nice guys. That's true. And I'm not yep. saying other guys aren't, but they tend to be low maintenance, uh, really guys that you really enjoy and appreciate what you do. Cause you also like for guys to appreciate what you do. And so, it, to me, it's it's you know it does, they can be any position. It's not a position thing. It's more of a personality thing. I think that you like to to fit, excuse me, and mesh with your clients well because you want to enjoy what you're doing as well as provide the service. 
Yeah, I read a quote from Bill Belichick recently where I, I think he said he was talking to Urban Meyer and said, at this point in my career, I want to coach players that I like to be around. And that just makes so much sense. Like if you're going to be committed to this all year round as an agent or as a coach or as a whatever, you want to be around people you like being around. I mean, it just did no time for the shenanigans that sometimes go on around yeah. certain people. Um, you mentioned earlier that you got your law degree from the University of Oklahoma. Do you view view that as an essential step to getting uh, to, to effectively managing athletes, having your law degree, or can you be a top agent without it? I, th- I think you can be a top agent without it. Um, I believe, and in fact, I'm sure that the, uh, the Players Association requires some type of uh, graduate degree, and there are tons of master's programs out there now in sports administration and sports management. Yep. And I think, uh, uh, for example, the University, the Arizona State has got a real nice one-year program. It's a master's, and it's it's a business slash law type of master's that I think is is was, and and there's others out there. I just happen to know that one pretty well. Um, I think if you don't want to go to law school for three years, and and not everybody does. Um, I think some of those other master's programs prepare you just as well as law school does. It just, when I started out, there were very few people doing this. We're talking about late 60s. Yeah. And I already had my law degree. There was no particular career path that you could be pointing towards in those days because there was no way to become an agent, and there was also very little need because of the kind of compensation that pro athletes were making in the late sixties. Right. You know, today it's totally different. You know, there's all this career track and career path that you can follow now. But, uh, I think a law degree is helpful, but, <clears throat> but to get back to your point, I don't think it's necessary to become a successful agent. Okay. That's some good advice. Um, we'll finish up with this. You've been doing this for a long time. You mentioned you started in the late sixties. You've had some of the biggest names in sports, under your purview, how much has the business of being an agent changed since you first started? And have you seen changes for the better, or do you think it's kind of worse or harder now than it was back then? Well, I think starting out today, it would be quite a bit harder just because of the sheer number of people that are in the business or trying to be in the business. Um, there's just um, there's so much competition. There's so much uh, being. I don't know what all is being offered, but to the top guys, there's there's a lot of financial incentives being offered. There's marketing guarantees. There's uh, loans. There's stipends. We we all have to be prepared to pay for the training expense. So you've got to have a little bit of capital to work with to get started to sign a a quality prospect. So in the days when I started out, none of this, there was none of this. There was, there was none of the personal training. There was, there was none of the financial stuff being offered. Uh, I had four number ones in 1970 in the NFL and they all started at guess what? 25,000. Oh boy. Different world. $25,000 salaries. That's crazy. First year. And it was like 25, 27, 5, 30, 32, 5. That was like a four-year contract. That's so, crazy. So 
so you don't you wouldn't want to spend a whole lot of money uh, getting a client for something that you're going to re- be able to get. Uh, back in those days, the fees weren't regulated, but certainly uh, if if you were able to charge three percent. Um, on a $25,000 salary, that's $750. You wouldn't want to spend a whole lot to get that client. So basically what I was doing and what most people were doing back in those days were maintaining another type of business. In my case, I was being a regular attorney, and I was just doing it as part of my law practice. Today, people are, you know, uh, like us, a lot of people are are exclusively doing uh, representation work, agent work yeah. uh, for their sole the sole uh, practice. The economics of four first round draft picks in 2018 versus 1970 is just jaw dropping, isn't it? It means staggering. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, <clears throat> you know, it's just like well, light years. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's it's, it's a totally different world. And and like I said, there's more people are doing it. So, and and there's a lot of fee cutting. You know, the union allows us to charge three percent, but when you're talking about top guys, I don't think very many people are getting three percent. Okay. So, so you know that that cuts the the margins get a little thin yep. until a guy gets to that second contract. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That that second free agent con. Yeah. It makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Well, Jack, it's been a com- real honor to speak with you and to learn from somebody with your level of expertise. I know our audience is going to be very excited to hear this and uh, your insight into what it's like being on the front lines of NFL representation. So good luck with uh, Baker Mayfield and all your other clients this year. We'll be watching and keeping in touch on everything. Well, thank you. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you to Jack Mills for coming on the show and a special shout out to Zach Gross for helping me connect with Jack and get him on the show. Uh, it's always fascinating to talk with somebody with that much experience. And he's just got this calm nature to him. You know, he's just feel like he exudes truth and honesty and is going to shoot straight with you. And I just absolutely love that about him. And I think that's a model we should all follow no matter what role we're in. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please remember to subscribe, share with your friends, review wherever you listen to a podcast. The more positive reviews we get, the higher we rank in the podcast search algorithms, which helps us get new audience, which helps me get really good guests, and it brings it all back around. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and stay safe out there. I mean it.